Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to read Daniel chapter 5 tonight. Um, I have realized over the past few weeks that Daniel contains probably three of the best stories in the entire Bible. Uh, We have already looked at um, Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Tonight we're looking at the handwriting on the wall. And all being well, next week we'll be looking at Daniel in the lion's den. Three classic Bible stories Uh, And it has been really helpful for us to refresh ourselves on those stories and and what they teach us and also of how they point us forward to the Lord Jesus. So Daniel chapter 5 tonight, we're going to read the whole of the chapter. Uh, You'll find it on page 742 over into 743 of the Pew Bibles. Another great but another long story, uh, 31 verses in this chapter, but we'll read it all together this evening. So Daniel chapter 5. The reading begins on page 742 of the Pew Bibles, and this is God's word to us. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold round his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold round your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt, pro that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put round his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, we're going to think about this chapter for a few moments this evening. Uh, you'll find it on page 742 of our Pew Bibles, page 742 and over into 743. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is just walk our way through this story. We will have points, but the structure will be slightly looser. Our points will help us understand what this story teaches and we're also just going to go straight into the story normally a bit of an introduction at the start but we're just going to go straight in tonight because uh, it's quite a good story and it should capture our attention and um, hopefully we'll be able to to stick with it uh, throughout page 742 over into 743 of our pew bibles but daniel 5 tells us about a party that shouldn't have happened it's a party that signaled the end of the babylonian empire Historians of that era, era could rightly have called Belshazzar's feast Partygate, given the effect that it had on the empire. Babylon had once ruled the world. Uh, the apex of the empire came in Nebuchadnezzar's time, and Babylon was the major player in the Middle East. There's a map on the screen to help you understand the scope of the empire. So the Babylonian empire is the bit in green. And as you'll see, it covers Israel and Judah, and the red line, little red line, uh, indicates the journey of the Jewish exiles. And it helps us to realize 
that they weren't moved just around the corner, they were moved really quite far away from home. The empire covers a large area, it covered most of modern day Syria, Jordan and Iraq, and it also takes in part of Turkey and runs right down to the border with Egypt. So a really significant empire. The, the, the Babylonians had access to three coastlines, as you can see there, the Mediterranean Sea, the Persian Gulf, and also the Red Sea or the Nile. So they were the movers and shakers in the ancient world. But the empire comes crashing down, and it comes crashing down tonight in Daniel chapter 5. The, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of how God's people would spend 70 years in captivity in ba Babylon, but he also spoke about the judgment to come on the Babylonians. This is Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. When we see regime change in a country, we only ever view it from a human perspective. So we see Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine and we think, well, he is a despot, he is a dictator. We see the Taliban regain control of Afghanistan and we say, well, when the Americans pulled out, when the British pulled out, we knew that was going to happen. Something like that was always going to happen. They were always going to take back control. But Daniel 5 gives us a picture of regime change from God's perspective. We're told about a party that shouldn't have happened, a party that marks the end of a once great human empire. And what Daniel tells us is that the end of the empire is God's doing. This is actually a very sobering chapter. When we read about parties in the Bible, they're never presented to us positively. Parties in scripture are never good. In Esther 1, we're told about King Xerxes I, the, the king of Persia, holding a party that lasts for 180 days. It ends with Xerxes calling his wife Vashti to flaunt her beauty before everyone at the party. Vashti refuses and the king explodes. In Mark 6, we're told about an alcohol-fueled birthday party for King Herod. All the leading nobles and military commanders are there. Herod asks his stepdaughter to perform for everyone at the party and promises her whatever she wants. She asks for the head of John the Baptist, and she duly gets it. Parties in the Bible are never good. Daniel 5 is on the list of parties gone wrong in the Bible. Look at how the chapter starts. King Belshazzar made a feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. On a human level, this sounds like a brilliant event, a brilliant night out. The red carpet is out, the wine is flowing, the crack is mighty. Historians tell us that feasts like this one were part of Babylonian culture. This was one of the best. But yet there's an emptiness to it all. The, the, the text calls Belshazzar the king, but he, he wasn't quite king. In 562, 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar died, and he was succeeded by his son, but he only ruled for three years before he was assassinated. There were four more Babylonian kings after that, including Belshazzar, and he was co-regent with his father, Nab Nabonidus. The text does say that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, verse 2, verse 11, verse 18. But we know that in the Bible, being someone's father doesn't necessarily mean that they are their biological father. So for example, we might talk about being children of Abraham, of how Abraham is our father. He's not our biological father, 
but he could be considered as our spiritual father. The, the gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 is 30 years. And a lot has changed since then. There's been assassinations and so on. And the empire has, in a sense, crumbled following Nebuchadnezzar's stable leadership. Those who have come after him haven't been of the same ilk. And that's particularly true of Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed cities and plundered them. He made mighty statues and, and built the wonders of Babylon. The only thing Belshazzar can make is a feast. Nebuchadnezzar built an empire. Belshazzar planned a party. And it's a bad party. It's an idolatrous party. The Bible tells us that God is not mocked. And the events of this chapter remind us of that truth. In what we can only assume is drunken stupidity, Belshazzar commands that his officials bring out the golden vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Once they're out, verse 4 tells us, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. It was about 50 years since the temple vessels were stolen from the temple of the living God, and now Belshazzar is using them to worship idols. It's an amazing expression of pride. He is leading his people in saying, this is what we think of God. He is nothing. We're using the symbols of his power and presence to enjoy ourselves and to toast our gods. But God is not mocked. Look at verses five and six. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Party, party, party. Then God lifts his fingers and suddenly everyone is sober. We'll come to what the writing on the wall said in a few moments. But Belshazzar is presented to us as someone who is in control, but it only takes the movement of God's finger to completely change the scene. The blood drains from Belshazzar's face. He's terrified. His limbs give way and his knees knock together. A literal interpretation of his limbs gave way is the knots of his loins were loosened. Now, you don't need me to explain what that means. On the 8th of January 1992, the President of the United States, George Bush Sr., was attending a banquet hosted by the Prime Minister of Japan. Bush fainted after vomiting in the, in the Japanese Prime Minister's lap. Doctors later said that Bush had a case of acute gas, gastroenter, uh, gastroenteritis. And again, you don't need me to tell you what that means. It was blamed on some sushi the president had. He became incontinent because of sushi. Belshazzar, well, he becomes incontinent because of sin. God is not mocked. And alongside that, and this is our first main point, the glory of the world is fading. The glory of the world is fading. The glory of the world is an empty glory. As we see Belshazzar and his friends celebrating, a mirror is held up to our own society. Most of the time, the affluent West is having a party and is using all of the gifts that God has given us to ignore him or mock him. And we are far too easily impressed by all that glitters, whether or not it is truly gold. The glitz and the glam that we are bombarded with is all a screen. It's all superficial. It's an attempt to cover up reality. The world's glory 
is a tawdry glory. It's showy, but it's cheap. And it never truly satisfies. In our culture, we idolize those who are physically attractive, those who are filthy rich, but our envy operates at a far more boring level as well. We covet the assets of multimillionaires and our neighbors. We envy the stuff other people have, the house, the car, the looks, the career, the family. The reality is that actually there is something in Belshazzar in all of us, in all of our hearts. We turn so quickly in worship to created things rather than the creator. We take what God has given and then we announce that we don't like God or his ways. We'd rather have a God who agrees with us and with how we want to behave, a God who answers to us rather than us answering to him. But the glory of the world is fading. It will not last and we shouldn't overly invest ourselves in it. We shouldn't invest ourselves in something that is ultimately passing away. Back to the story, Belshazzar is in big trouble. Uh, the moment the finger appears on the wall, he knows that he has a problem. Uh, Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, captured the scene vividly in a painting. Uh, the painting is on the screen for us. I think he captures it absolutely brilliantly, so vivid, so clear. You see the shock on other people's faces, and you see Belshazzar himself knowing that he is in big trouble. Belshazzar's response to the finger appearing is to call all the people who weren't able to help Nebuchadnezzar in previous times of crisis. He calls the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And Belshazzar promises them rewards. They'll be clothed in purple, a royal color, and they'll get a chain of gold, and they'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third, because Belshazzar is co-regent with someone else, remember. But, surprise, surprise, they can't read the writing. Verse 9 tells us that Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen enters in verse 10, and this was probably the queen mother because verse 2 tells us that Belshazzar's wives were already in the banqueting hall. The queen mother is Belshazzar's mother, and she speaks to him in verses 11 and 12. She starts off respectfully, but what she's basically saying is this. Do you, know, you should have known who to ask to interpret this writing. There's a man in your kingdom called Daniel, and he is the guy you need to talk to. Daniel is brought in before Belshazzar, and it's all a bit tense. The queen mother has carefully rebuked her son, and he felt it. When Daniel appears before him, he shows a thinly veiled hostility towards him. You are that, Daniel. I have heard of you, I think. I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. You can imagine the tone. But Belshazzar is putting Daniel in his place. He's making him feel like an exile. Daniel gets straight down to business, though, as he responds to the king. His response begins in verse 17, and he doesn't begin with the usual deferential politeness of the Babylonian court. He tells Belshazzar bluntly, let your gifts be for yourself. You, yourself. You, can, you can keep your chain, Belshazzar. I don't want any of the stuff that you're offering me. What Daniel says next is very important. He puts the writing on the wall into context and compares Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And the point of what he says is clear. Nebuchadnezzar had something to be proud about, yet the Lord humbled him. Belshazzar should have learned from this experience and humbled himself as well. Instead, he exalted himself against the Lord. 
Daniel really highlights that in verses 22 and 23. He is clearly very angry at what Belshazzar has done. And in verses 22 and 23, he uses the word you and your 14 times in like a, in like a machine gun-like application of Belshazzar's foolish, foolishness. You, you, you. Bam, bam, bam. The judgment of God is coming. Daniel promptly delivers the interpretation of the writing. This story is, is very cleverly put together because we're told about the writing in verse 5, but it's not until verse 25 that we find out what it says. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. The three words are three different weights that were used to weigh precious metals on a scale, and they carry a terrifying message for Belshazzar. Daniel interprets it for him in verses 26 through to 28. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Did Belshazzar believe Daniel's interpretation of the inscription? We'll never know. He gave Daniel the rewards he promised but that was the last command he gave. Look at the chilling words of verses 30 and 31. That night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The whole time Belshazzar was enjoying his party, Medo-Persian soldiers were working their way into the city. The ancient Persian historian Xenophon records how Darius' soldiers dammed up a portion of the Euphrates River part of which ran under the walls of Babylon. That created a marshy area that made it possible for them to walk through the river without being up to their necks. They directed it into a marshland, making it possible for their soldiers to wade through the shallow water, down the riverbed, under the wall, into the city, and into the palace. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Daniel 5 gives us a picture of regime change from God's perspective. And it also reminds us that the judgment of God is coming. There are times when God speaks with frightening clarity. And this is a very good example. Belshazzar's party is exposed as the ultimate act of folly. He was feasting on the brink of the grave and celebrating on the edge of eternity. And he didn't even know it. Hebrews 9.27 puts it plainly, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The foolishness of sin will be revealed one day. Belshazzar perhaps thought that he could get away with it. In the 2015 James Bond film Spectre, uh, there was a, a theme song called Writings on the Wall. And one part of the song says this, I've spent a lifetime running and I always get away. That's maybe what Belshazzar thought. I, I will get away from this. God is not real, therefore I can do what I want. But his world and the Babylonian Empire came crashing down on the night of his feast. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. I, I have a question about this story. It's a question about what Daniel says to Belshazzar in verses 17 to 23. Did you notice 
what he doesn't tell Belshazzar to do. Daniel doesn't tell Belshazzar to repent. In 427, he calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent. My question is, why does he not do the same thing with Belshazzar? It might be that he's, he's cold and uncaring. Daniel's now in his 80s. Maybe he just he doesn't care anymore. Maybe he thinks that it's not his job to do evangelism anymore. I don't think it's that. Here's what I think is going on. Daniel is in his 80s. As we read this chapter, we get the sense that, that Daniel has, has been sidelined by recent Babylonian rulers. He was heavily involved in Nebuchadnezzar's court, but not in the courts that followed. And that's especially seen in Belshazzar's tone towards him. It appears that Daniel was unwelcome at the palace. He wasn't asked for counsel or guidance. And he was forgotten about and ignored by those at the heart of culture and government. He is outraged at Belshazzar's idolatry. And he doesn't call him to repent for this reason. He's too far gone. Nebuchadnezzar built an empire. Belshazzar planned a party. But this was one party too many. He has overstepped the mark, crossed the line, passed the point of no return with God. There are times when God speaks with frightening clarity for the final time. The writing on the wall was the final time Belshazzar heard the voice of God. He he had silenced it by silencing Daniel, but God had one final thing to say. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There's a severity to this story, but God is just and will not be mocked, and there is nothing, no, no idol so fulfilling, no fortress so secure, no activity so hidden that it can protect sin from the judgment of God. Something similar happened to Herod in the New Testament. He threw a party in which John the Baptist ended up being beheaded. He toyed with the truth as he listened to John, but he, he, but he, in the end, he silenced the voice of God through his prophet. Listen to what happened later in Herod's life when he met Jesus, when Jesus was on trial. This is Luke 23, 8 and 9. When Jesus saw Herod, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him, Jesus, at some length, but he made no answer. It's so severe. The saviour of the world, Herod questions him, but he made no answer. He was too far gone. He had thrown one party too many. The judgment of God is coming. How, how does this affect you sitting here, watching at home? Well, this is how. No one knows when they'll hear the gospel for the final time. No one knows when they'll hear their last sermon. And, and by hearing, I mean hearing the call to come to Christ. You can audibly hear a sermon, but not hear it. You can listen to someone like me, wax lyrical, but be switched off spiritually. The warning from Daniel 5 is that the judgment of God is coming. And in light of that, you need to be ready to meet the Lord, or you will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. The glory of the world is fading. The judgment of God is coming. And the hope of the gospel is stunning could continue to press home the fact of eternal judgment from this story 
And while that's important, it's also important to talk about the good news of the gospel. There is bad news, but you know, there's also good news. Sometimes in the Bible, people are presented to us as the opposite of Jesus. That's actually to make us see how great he is. The Old Testament keeps pointing us forward. It's always pushing us to think about the Messiah, the Savior, the, the one who's come to rescue. Jesus is the opposite of Belshazzar. How? Well, well, Jesus had none of the outward glitz and glamour that the world so often chases. Isaiah talks about him being one from whom men hid their faces. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty, the beauty that we should desire him. The glory of the world was, was not something that Jesus chased after. In fact, he had virtually no possessions and relatively few followers. He never had the resources to, to throw a star-studded party for a thousand of his closest friends. He actually warned against chasing after the glory of the world. He said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Unlike Belshazzar, he was also aware of the coming judgment of God, Belshazzar lived as though he was going to live forever. But while he was on earth, Jesus declared, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And when Jesus' life was, was wed in God's balance, as he hung on the cross, it was found to be perfect and complete. It was able to satisfy the demands of God's holiness and not just for himself, but for all those who come to God through him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus' banquet awaits us in the future at the end of time. On that day, in place of Belshazzar's nobles, there will be thousands upon thousands of Jesus' people in attendance, namely those who have washed their robes and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the opposite of Belshazzar. The glory of the world is fading. Jesus knew that. The judgment of God is coming. Jesus declared that. The hope of the gospel is stunning. Je Jesus shows us that through all that he has done. Sometimes in the Bible, people are presented to us as the opposite of Jesus. Belshazzar is definitely one of those people. And because he's one of those people, he's a warning to us. He's a warning to you tonight if you're outside of Christ. Whatever you're living for, you, you need to know that it won't last. Its glory will fade. And you need to know that judgment is coming. One day you will be wed in the balances of God. What will God say when he wears you? If he were to wear you in his balances tonight, what would he say? You've been wed in the balances and found wanting. You will not enter my kingdom, but will instead be separated from me for all eternity. The Bible is abundantly clear. When it speaks about matters of eternity, like this chapter does, it always says that today is the best day to get right with God. I listened to another preacher in this passage this week, 
and it was a good sermon, but the line that struck me, struck, stuck with me most wasn't a line from the sermon itself. It was a line in his prayer after the sermon. He prayed for people who, who are living on a knife edge of these things. It's a very vivid picture. You, you know what a knife is. You, you, you use one every day. You know that a knife edge, can, knife edge can be small and sharp. And the person I listened to was praying for people who are living on the knife edge of, of trusting in Jesus, but who just keep putting it off. I'll leave it for another day. Leave it for another month, another year. Do not delay. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 is clear. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Can I say again to you tonight that if you're here or if you're watching at home and you're not a Christian but would like to talk to me about what it means to trust in Jesus, please get in touch and don't allow this day to slip by without dealing with these crucial eternal matters. Daniel 5 tells us about a party that shouldn't have happened. It gives us a picture of, of regime change from God's perspective but it also tells us that the glory of the world is fading the judgment of God is coming and the hope of the gospel is stunning. Let's pray together. Lord, we realize that tonight all of us are living on the precipice of eternity. We realize that we are living and we do not know when we will be called to meet you. And this chapter in Daniel is a solemn reminder of that fact. And we pray that we would be those who are found right before you and not found wanting. And Lord, we pray for those who are living on the knife edge of these things, who are putting it off and putting it off and who haven't yet come to you. Lord, we pray that tonight by your spirit, you might convict them of their need of Christ and that they would come to you in repentance and faith. Father, we thank you that the hope of the gospel is stunning. We thank you so much for Jesus, the opposite of Belshazzar, our great and glorious king, the one who has died so that we might live, the one who has poured himself out on the cross also that we might be friends with you. Help us to trust him. Help us to follow him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.